You're too social. You're too social, friends. I'll just let you talk the way out and we'll just not do the rest, okay? Uh, welcome to Elementary Church. I'm Pastor Scott. Left side learns a little more introverted. I love it. Thank you. Right side, you're a little more extroverted. Right in the middle, kind of a bit like me. We're a bit 50 50 on that test. Welcome, welcome. Glad you're here. Glad you're worshiping with us with the best day ever. Yes, that was like a semi-professional tour golf person getting a triple bogey. And they're like, oh, yay, best day ever. Way to get a seven on a par four. Let's try this again. And we're here for the best day ever. Yeah, that's still junior league, okay? That's still junior league, E3. I'm just saying, I, I know if some football team scores some point, you're like ripping your shirt in, in joy, okay? Don't rip shirts. We don't do that in this church. Don't rip shirts. Let's try it one more time. Welcome to the best day ever! That's what I'm talking about. We want to welcome you to the best day ever. This is a, a, a service based around baptism, which is a sacrament We'll perform in a moment, but first a message uh, that, that I want to just challenge all of us, whether we've been following Jesus personally our entire lives, or maybe this is one of the very first times that I'm entering in a place where I'm saying, I don't know about all this, and all this, there's some messed up people in this room. I don't know if I want to join them and be a part of that. But the question I want to ask is, what does God want to do with me? What does God want to do with me? And we come to this book asking that question, and that's really what it's about. It's how to be saved. A lot of people will take this book and say, oh, it's a science book. It's a history book. It has lessons about ancient religions and different cultures. It has all sorts of different uh, miracles that are just inexplainable, but also gives so many steady, long-lasting wisdom that can test all different cultures and all different languages. And I say, yes, but primarily it's a book about being saved. And so this morning I want to Spread out a little bit. I'm going to prowl a little bit, so watch out, watch out. Okay? I'm not going off the stage. Don't worry. I'm not going to pull you into the baptismal. But I do want to just use this stage as a semi-timeline, where about every step to my left is about 100 years. And we're going to go through this book together. But on the screen right now, if you look, there's an image that I want to point out. And that this book is so wonderfully and powerfully woven together, it's really woven together, that there's this on the right side, and of course you can't see this, but on the right side, these are all the prophecies that somehow then connect to the right side. The left side is the right side. The right side is the New Testament. The left side is the Old Testament. This book dialogues among itself through 66 different authors, through 66 different books, through numerous different authors, excuse me. The, the ability to use the Holy Spirit to proclaim a message about how to be saved. And so with that, we're going to start way over here and if I could, I would just jump off stage because this first part goes off of time. The Bible says in both Genesis and in John, in the beginning, John says the word. Genesis says there was nothing. It was formless, a void. And God, the Father, God, the Spirit, they come and they create out of nothing everything. And they have seven days and every day was good. And even the seventh day where God rested, he put his feet up on a lazy boy up in heaven. It was good. And all of a sudden the narrative changes, and we see these two characters, one named Adam, one named Eve. 
Adam is created by God out of the ground, which comes from being Adam. Eve comes from Adam's rib. And they live in paradise. We don't know how long they live. We know they're naked. We know that they have no sin. And the dang serpent comes and curses them because they eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that moment, everything changes. Just as we said last week, everything changes for the good because of Christ rising from the dead. In that moment, everything changes for them. See, Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. And God put curses on every one of them, showing that each one of them had done wrong, had done evil, had separated themselves from paradise and from God. In that moment, you can just see the narrative of the entire scripture just grown in agony, saying, what does God want with me? It's for me to recognize that all of us, myself included, have played that same part in reaching for something that's not mine, it's only God's. Trying to elevate myself to God's status. And I am cursed because of my sin. We fast forward just a couple generations, we see that sin has a penalty. We go from Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel, and they're just perfect, right? Perfect siblings. No issues, just one murders the other, like most siblings want to do, but we just don't quite do it. And we go from one generation to sin, just kill, churning in humanity. We see this play on in the Tower of Babel, which has a beautiful connection into Acts. We see it play on through the moments of Noah and this ark, which seems so unbelievable, but you see that sin maintains until we get to this guy named Abram. And Abram, who I just love the character, he's this older guy who's never had a kid. And God comes to him and says, hey, I'm going to make you a promise. He says it several different ways. But he says, you know, even though you're in your upper 90s, now's the time to have a kid, right? That's how most of us are planning out our lives. Can't wait to hit 95 and, yeah, time for a kid. They do some things, him and his wife, Sarai, that are not quite right with how God wants to play this out. Kind of creates a whole other separate story, but the point of the story is, is God makes a covenant here with a person of Abraham called the Abrahamic Covenant. He says, I'm going to do this, and you just be you. I'm going to make more descendants than stars in the sky, and one of your descendants is going to redeem everything. We'll get into him here in a second. The Abrahamic covenant is so pivotal to the rest of how things go because from Abraham comes his descendants. Abraham. Who comes after him? Isaac. Then Jacob. Unbelievable story. He gets renamed Jacob to Israel because he wrestles with God because he's blessed by God. And we see him also carry on. He has 12 different sons and they become these 12 tribes of Israel. Yes, it's more complicated than that, but we're just giving the simple version. Okay, here are three. These 12 sons are going to be the forebears of what Israel will become. And this covenant of Abraham is so key to that. One of those sons is named Jacob. And he has a coat of many colors. Also could be Joseph. Sorry. Thank you. I don't have any notes. What did I say even? I see. One of Jacob's sons is Jacob. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, call me out if I go wrong on this. One of Jacob's sons is Joseph. He has a coat of many colors, which also can be translated as a coat of very long sleeves. That's a weird translation going from, from ancient Israel to, to, to today's English. But this long coat going to the 11th son is seen as something 
that angers the other brothers. They sell him into slavery. He goes to this place called Egypt. And he ascends into the highest ranks of the Egypt hierarchy, where he is Lord in Egypt in, so, in some senses. And over the next 400 years or so, there's just silence. The Israelites multiply and multiply and multiply until a Pharaoh who does not know them begins to enslave them because he's threatened by them. You know the story in Exodus? For 400 years or so, there's just nothing. It's radio silence. These people are pleading, saying, God, please save us. Please help us. Please come and be with us. And so God sends the least likely of candidates in some senses, but also the perfect candidate named Moses. Aaron. And they come proclaim freedom through miracles, through unbelievable experiences, and all of a sudden this people group who started with Abraham, who are connected all the way up here to Adam and Eve, are found freedom. And they go off into, into the desert. They wander along. We get five books of laws and rules and regulations for a people that God wants to hem them in. And a second covenant is born. It's called the Ten Commandments. You know them. Some of you have them memorized. And this covenant says, I am your God, you are my people, so do these ten things. And then there's a lot of commentary after those ten things. A lot of asterisks and double asterisks and triple asterisks. Do this and this, and also if it happens to be in the third year of Shiloh, and the people, they can't do it. And they wander around until they finally get into the promised land, a land flowing of milk and honey. And they're so excited that this guy named Joshua, who has been chosen from Moses, Joshua comes in, he says, let's take the promised land. And they take it by storm. And God places them strategically in a place where each and every trade route in the entire world would eventually go through. Isn't that awesome? God doesn't set his promised land in Antarctica or Nebraska. Fly over state, baby. I get it. I've driven it many times. But God wants these people to share with the entire world who God is. What does God want with me? God wanted with them to show play and to share who God is with every single person in this world. And yet over and over and over they fail. So they get this period of judges where God raises up people with long flowing hair and huge muscles to help govern the people and to bring order out of the chaos. And one of them is named Ruth. She's not one of the judges, but she is a pivotal character who comes in this judges period. And we're going to start a series next week on Ruth, wherever you go. I invite you back next week to really understand the person of Ruth and how that applies to me today. But meanwhile, back to my story. From Ruth, we see King David come on the scene. And King David is one of the most amazing leaders of all of Israel, one of the best rulers of all time. He's an unbelievable king. And David comes in, and he has a heart after God's own heart. He's one with God. And David lives a perfect life. He's an amazing king. And again, the rest of the story's done. <laughs> Except he kind of inadvertently, on purpose, has a man killed. So he has his wife. He, he, he disobeys God several times. He's not all that great. But even in his lowliness, God uses him and makes a, David, a Davidic covenant. Davidic covenant. Saying that one from your line will always be on the throne forever. You think about that just from a presidential standpoint. We have four, four years, and then we get it up eight years, and then that's a term limit. 
And can you imagine someone actually reigning forever as a ruler? It blows my mind. And that Davidic covenant that comes right in here, right in here, it's pointing right here to this person. We'll get to him in a minute. After David comes, there's a man named Solomon. Solomon builds a temple for the Lord, the wisest person ever. Solomon has a problem. He likes a lot of different women. He likes a lot of different women's gods. And so Solomon fails. And then we have an invited kingdom. We have the north, we have the south. And there's a civil war. And there's kings after kings after kings after kings after kings. And all of them, mostly, 90%, are just rotten, awful kings. And so God sends prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. One of the more famous ones. There's minor prophets as well. Habakkuk, Amos, who's so famous a cookie's named after him. <laughs> Some of you are going to get it later. <laughs> we see that Elijah and Elisha are two of the prophets who just proclaim to these evil, awful kings, turn around, and yet they don't. And we see that in the dramatic foreplay of getting to Jesus, in this dramatic reading to getting to Jesus, the center of the, the whole thing, that we see these prophets proclaiming, 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 and over and over and over, the people fall. To the point where other nations come to this weakened Israel in this perfect spot in the world and they take it over. The northern kingdom's broken into. People are enslaved. The southern kingdom by Babylon, people are taken, put in slavery. Daniel was with them. And over the course of many generations, we see the people gradually coming back to this homeland of Israel because they're freed. And people in the Bible... We have Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, who's actually in captivity, come and they are still a part of this dialogue. And so in this time of being in exile, it's very confusing. They don't even have a really sense of where their capital is or who they are. They try to rebuild. And over the course of hundreds of years after that, again, a period of radio silence. God appears to, to have said, hey, I'm going to do all these things that you see on the screen. I'm going to restore all these things because of one person. He's going to fulfill not only the Davidic covenant, but the Abrahamic covenant. He's going to make it all better. But silence. The Greeks come in. And in Alexander the Great, they take over. They desecrate the temple, 167. We see the Romans come in, and the Romans are worse even than the Greeks. And the people are hopeless. Until somewhere around 6 or 5 or maybe 4 B.C., we see an unknown Jewish carpenter and a woman betrothed to be married to him have a little boy. What does God want with me? Friends, you are one day away from being just like Mary and Joseph were. You never know. I don't want you to have any virgin births out there. <laughs> But in all seriousness, God wants with you maybe what he wanted with David and Mary, Mary Joseph. We see that this person, Jesus, comes and he lives a life that's unlike any others. Except there's nothing about him that makes him seem godlike. It'd be nice if he was, you know, seven foot two. It'd be nice if he, you know, could pick up mountains with his bare hands. It'd be easy to identify him. But he does things kind of in secret. He says these things called parables. And he reorients all of society. The Romans who have all the power, he says, no, they're actually powerless. The Pharisees who have all the Bible knowledge, he says, no, they know nothing. He reorients everything, saying the people who are 
slaves, who are the lowest in society, the people who are lepers, who are sick, who say, I don't have any worth. The poor, the marginalized, the lost, they are shown to be Jesus' true people. Friends, in this room, you are Jesus' true people. Because you reorient your life towards him. He leads up to this big, huge parade, and he raises a man from the dead, and the entire country is just a buzz saying, hey, there's something, we got to come see this guy. People shouting Hosanna in the streets. And then on one day, a day just a week ago, the anniversary of, he's crucified, killed. That Saturday, he rests in the tomb on that Sabbath. And there is no hope. The story seems to have ended except for Sunday. That resurrection Sunday where Easter comes and Jesus is risen from the dead. Can I get an amen? Amen. Follow with me? This Jesus reorients everything. And everything that way, from the very beginning of time, and even before that, points right here. And he has these, I call them 12 stooges, who all of a sudden, before him, are just morons. They don't understand anything what he's doing. All of a sudden, they become the greatest assets to the kingdom of God. They're unlearned, mostly illiterate men who go and start spreading the word. And by the way, we all know the women do the work. Yeah. <laughs> Can I get an amen? amen? A little higher pitch, but okay, we'll take it. Yes. <laughs> Here's the point. Is that the 12 stooges and all these women who follow Jesus come and they plant a new religious movement that is unrivaled to any other. And they pass away and another generation comes. And it keeps spreading like a disease. And then another generation comes. And we see these amazing people willing to live, give their lives, just like those 11 did. Just like those 11 did. Every single one of them willing to give their life because of what they believed in. It just wasn't some sort of magician. It just wasn't some sort of scam. It wasn't even a pyramid scheme. No, they died for this man. Burned alive. Killed. Crucified upside down. They gave their lives for this man. And so many after. A great woman named Perpetua. Perpetua gives her life in a gladiatorial contest and writes an amazing journal about it just generations after Jesus comes. Theologians start popping up, trying to understand just exactly what happened from this moment. Understand what this thing called the Holy Spirit happens. Because just days after his ascension, the spirit comes down and people are able to talk in other languages. They're able to speak and do miracles. And all of a sudden we see this movement gain momentum through hundreds of years of great theology until we get to even a Roman emperor named Constantine. Never lost the battle. But he's stopped by a mob of Christians trying to debate some sort of theological thing we don't care about today. And he says... This, this, this guy is different. And he proclaims to the entire Roman Empire, this is God. Not these pagans. And then thousands and millions of people are coming to Jesus on those days. The church becomes a source of protection and power and barbarians invade and destroy the empire. And we see over the next hundreds of years, there's this period called the Dark Ages. A period where... People get these ideas that somehow it's about power again. It's about control. Let's end up crusades. Let's do all sorts of heinous, awful things like selling sin forgiveness. That somehow we might be able to control the people instead of giving them what Jesus wanted them to know from the very beginning. 
German priests come along, one named Martin Luther, reorients things back. John Calvin, John Wesley. There's so many lists of people who I can say who create these different expressions of what the following Jesus has meant. And we get these big giant denominations of people who group together with a common thought. It's not all bad. But it shows that God is so much bigger from the very moment he makes us in his image. And you are the image of God that everyone has to find a common connection and a community and a theology that makes sense over this huge timeline. And then we get to today. What does God want with you? Does God want you to sit in your own brain? Sit in your own sin? Sit in your own filth and not make a change, a proclamation? Does God want you just to stay where you are without anything changing, with just the hopelessness of this life, whatever your timeline looks like? Do you want to be like the Pharaoh? Do you want to be like so many kings who did wrong in the sight of the Lord? Do you want to be like the foreign invaders who had no idea what these people called the Jewish people were trying to worship, these Israelites. You want to be like Judas, who even to the very last moment tries to manipulate Jesus into something else that Jesus is not here for. Do you want to be like so many people after Jesus who maybe mean well, but who honestly just take God's name and pervert it to their own liking for their own profit, for their own power? Or do you want to be like the saints before us? The great theologians of our faith. The great doers of mercy missions. And proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to every corner of this world. Do you want to be like the 12 disciples who though they had no idea what they're committing to? Get to see Jesus transfigured on the mount. And get to see Moses and Elijah there with him. You want to be like the good kings and the good prophets who are willing to sacrifice their life for the Lord and do crazy things. Crazy things because God asked them to. Do you want to be back together with God in that garden forever? I know one person who does today. And I know... There are a lot of people in this room who do today. But for those who are somehow questioning their faith or don't get what this all means, it's just all too complicated, Pastor Scott. I can't figure this all out. Don't worry. Do not worry. It's not yours to figure out. Because a God who is at the very beginning and the very end actually cares about you. He cares about you as an individual but cares about where you are in community. Friends, Elementary Church is a church that if I had to, to mix together all the ingredients of a perfect church for me and my family, that's it. You are my ragamuffins. <laughs> and I hope you accept me as one too. Amen. Because we all are indebted to Jesus Christ and we are all transformed 
and renewed in his name. And we need to submit, just like we're going to see in a moment here, to baptism. When you submit to the waters and you go under, you're saying, I submit to you, Jesus Christ. Not to some tub. Not to some person. No, 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 no. This ain't about me, folks. Woo. It's about Jesus Christ. His purpose, his mercy, and him calling out to you saying, I want you. In a moment, we're going to play a video here online. I apologize for the apologies that we've had so many issues with our online today. We want to invite you just to come alongside and understand Jeff and his calling to be baptized here this morning. Let's have your attention to the screens right now. 